This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The New Statesman. You're listening to Audio Long Reads from The New Statesman, the best of our reported features and essays read aloud. In this episode, Grayson Perry on the rise and fall of Default Man, written by Grayson Perry and read by me, Tom Gatti. Hello, I'm Tom Gatti executive editor for culture at the New Statesman. I commissioned the piece you're about to hear, which appeared on the New Statesman website on 8th of October 2014 and in the 10th of October issue of the magazine. In 2014, the Turner Prize winning artist Grayson Perry guest edited the New Statesman on the theme of the great white male. Grayson, who is known for his subversive ceramics and tapestries, as well as his cross-dressing alter ego Claire, wanted to explore issues of gender, masculinity, Britishness, class, and the grip that white male power still exerts on the UK's culture and politics. In his signature essay for the issue, he characterised this force as default man. Grayson wrote that default man's dominance was weakening, and that has been borne out in the years since the article was first published, by the shifting shape of the British establishment. The percentage of women MPs, for example, has risen from 23% to 34%. In September 2022, Liz Truss's cabinet became the first to have no white men holding the four great offices of state. We've added some more recent statistics to Grayson's piece to show what has changed. But in the same period, the rise of figures such as the Canadian thinker Jordan Peterson has popularised the idea that masculinity is under assault and must be reasserted. The global men's rights movement has amplified this message. In this context, Grayson's message for default man, to relax, ditch his macho baggage, and allow his grip on power to loosen, seems as prescient as ever. Paddle your canoe up the River Thames, and you will come round the bend and see a forest of huge totems jutting into the sky. Great shiny monoliths in various phallic shapes, they are the wondrous cultural artefacts of a remarkable tribe. We all know someone from this powerful tribe, 
but we very rarely, if ever, ascribe their power to the fact that they have a particular tribal identity. I think this tribe, a small minority of our native population, needs closer examination. In the UK, its members probably make up about 10% of the UK population. Globally, probably less than 1%. They are among us and hide in plain sight. They dominate the upper echelons of British society, imposing, unconsciously or otherwise, their values and preferences on the rest of the population. With their colourful textile phalluses hanging round their necks, they make up an overwhelming majority in government, in boardrooms and also in the media. They are, of course, white, middle-class, heterosexual men, usually middle-aged. And every component of that description has historically played a part in making this tribe a group that punches far, far above its weight. I have struggled to find a name for this identity that will trip off the tongue or that doesn't clutter the page with unpronounceable acronyms such as WMCMAHM. The White Blob was a strong contender, but in the end I opted to call him Default Man. I like the word default for not only does it mean the result of not making an active choice, but two of its synonyms are failure to pay and evasion, which seems incredibly appropriate considering the group I wish to talk about. In 21st century Britain, the great white male has thrived and continues to colonise the high-status, high-earning, high-power roles. In 2014, 93% of executive directors in the UK were white men, and 77% of MPs were male, although after the 2019 general election, the latter figure fell to 66%. In business, the picture hasn't changed radically, Among FTSE 100 companies, the top three positions are 88% male and 97% white. The great white male's combination of good education, manners, charm, confidence and sexual attractiveness, or money as I like to call it, means he has a strong grip on the keys to power. Of course, the main reason he has those qualities in the first place is what he is, not what he has achieved. The American science fiction author John Scalzi, in his blog Whatever, thought that being a straight white male was like playing the computer game called Life, with the difficulty setting on easy. If you are a default man, you look like power. I must confess that I qualify in many ways to be a default man myself. But I feel that, by coming from a working class background and being an artist and a transvestite, I have enough cultural distance from the towers of power. I have space to turn round and get a fairly good look at the edifice. In the course of making my Channel 4 documentary series about identity, Who Are You?, the identity I found hardest to talk about, the most elusive, was default man's. Somehow his worldview, his take on society, now so overlaps with the dominant narrative that it is like a death star hiding behind the moon. We cannot unpick his thoughts and feelings from the proper right-thinking attitudes of our society. It is like in the past when people who spoke in cut-glass RP BBC tones would insist they did not have an accent. Only northerners and poor people had one of those. We live and breathe in a default male world. No wonder he succeeds, for much of our society operates on his terms. The former Liberal Democrat Cabinet Minister Chris Hune 68 years old, went to Westminster, studied PPE at Magdalen, self-destructively heterosexual, 
the default man we chose to interview for our series, poo-pooed any suggestion when asked if he benefited from membership or if he represented this group. Lone default man will never admit to or be fully aware of the tribal advantages of his identity. They are, naturally, full subscribers to that glorious capitalist project. They are individuals. This adherence to being individuals is the nub of the matter. Being individual means that if they achieve something good, it is down to their own efforts. They got the job because they are brilliant, not because they are a default man, and they are also presumed more competent by other default men. If they do something bad, it is also down to the individual, and not to do with their gender, race or class. If a default man commits a crime, it is not because fraud or sexual harassment, say, are endemic in his tribe. It is because he is a wrong'un. If a default man gets emotional, it is because he is a passionate individual, whereas if he were a woman, it would often be blamed on her sex. Identity only seems to become an issue when it is challenged or under threat. Our classic default man is rarely under existential threat. Consequently, his identity remains unexamined. It ambles along blithely, never having to stand up for its rights or to defend its homeland. When talking about identity groups, the word community often crops up. The working class, gay people, black people or Muslims are always represented by a community leader. We rarely, if ever, hear of the white middle class community. Communities are defined in the eye of default man. Community seems to be a euphemism for the vulnerable lower orders. Community is other. Communities usually seem to be embattled, separate from society. Society is what default man belongs to. In her essay, Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema, published in 1975, the British film theorist Laura Mulvey coined the term the male gaze. She was writing about how the gaze of the movie camera reflected the heterosexual male viewpoint of the directors, a viewpoint very much still with us, considering that only 9% of the top 250 Hollywood films in 2012 were directed by women, and only 2% of the cinematographers were female. By 2021, these figures had risen to 17% for directors and 6% for cinematographers. The default male gaze does not just dominate cinema. It looks down on society like the eye on Sauron's tower in The Lord of the Rings. Every other identity group is othered by it. It is the gaze of the expensively nondescript corporate leader watching consumers adorn themselves with his company's products, the better to get his attention. Default man feels he is the reference point from which all other values and cultures are judged. Default man is the zero longitude of identities. He has forged a society very much in his own image, to the point where now much of what other groups think and feel is the same. They take on the attitudes of default man because they are the attitudes of our elders, our education, our government, our media. If default men approve of something, it must be good, and if they disapprove, it must be bad. So people end up hating themselves because their internalised default man is berating them for being female, gay, black, silly or wild. I often hear women approvingly describe themselves or other women as feisty. Feisty, I feel, has sexist implications, as if standing up for yourself was exceptional in a woman. It sounds like a word that a raffish Lothario would use about a difficult conquest. 
I once gave a talk on kinky sex, and during the questions afterwards a gay woman floated an interesting thought. Is the legalising of gay marriage an attempt to neutralise the otherness of homosexuals, she asked. Was the subversive alternative being neutered by allowing gays to marry an apohetero lifestyle? Many gay people might have enjoyed their dangerous outsider status. Had default man implanted a desire to be just like him? It is difficult to tweezer out the effects of default man on our culture, so ingrained is it after centuries of their rules. A friend was once on a flight from Egypt. As it came in to land at Heathrow, he looked down at the rows of mock Tudor stockbroker belt houses in West London. Pointing them out, he said to the Egyptian man sitting next to him, Oh well, back to boring old England. The Egyptian replied, Ah, but to me this is very exotic. And he was right. To much of the world, the default Englishman is a funny foreign folk icon with his bowler hat, his Savile Row suit and Hugh Grant accent, living like Reggie Perrin in one of those polite suburban semis. All the same, his tribal costume and rituals have probably clothed and informed the global power elite more than any other culture. Leaders wear his clothes, talk his language and subscribe to some version of his model of how society should be. When I was at art college in the late 70s and early 80s, one of the slogans the feminists used was objectivity is male subjectivity. This brilliantly encapsulates how male power nestles in our very language, exerting influence at the most fundamental level. Men, especially default men, have put forward their biased, highly emotional views as somehow rational, more considered, more calm down dear. Women and minorities are framed as passionate or emotional, as if they, the default men, had this unique ability to somehow look round the side of that most interior lens, the lens that is always distorted by our feelings. Default man somehow had a dispassionate, empirical, objective vision of the world as a birthright, and everyone else was at the mercy of turbulent, uncontrolled feelings. That, of course, explained why the others often held views that were at such odds with their supposedly cool, analytic vision of the world. In 2014, footage of the UN spokesman Chris Gunnis breaking down in tears as he spoke of an attack on a shelter in Gaza in which 15 people, mostly women and children, were killed, went viral. It was newsworthy because reporters and spokespeople are supposed to be dispassionate and impartial. To show such feelings was to be unprofessional and low, the inherited mental health issues of default man are cast as a necessity for serious employment. I think default man should be made aware of the costs and increasing obsolescence of this trait, celebrated as a stiff upper lip. This habit of denying, recasting or suppressing emotion may give him the veneer of professionalism, but as the philosopher David Hume put it, reason is a slave of the passions. To be unaware of or unwilling to examine feelings means those feelings have free reign to influence behaviour unconsciously. Unchecked, they can motivate default man covertly, unacknowledged, often wreaking havoc. Even if rooted in long past events in the deep unconscious, these emotions still fester, churning in the dark at the bottom of the well. Who knows what unconscious, screwed-up personal journeys are being played out on the nation by emotionally illiterate default men. Being male and middle class, and from a generation that still valued the stiff upper lip, 
means our default man is an ideal candidate for low emotional awareness. He sits in a gender class age nexus marked unexploded emotional time bomb. These people have been in charge of our world for a long time. Things may be changing. For the text version of this article and all our long reads, subscribe to The New Statesman for just £1 a week for 12 weeks using our special podcast offer. Just visit www.newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. If you're enjoying our audio long reads, you might also like the New Statesman's international news podcast, World Review. Twice a week, the international team unpack the most significant stories in world affairs and interview special guests for their unique perspective and expertise. Get better informed with World Review, available wherever you get your podcasts. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. 
Women are often stereotyped as the emotional ones and men as rational. But after the 2008 financial crash, the picture looked different, as Hannah Rosen wrote in an article in The Atlantic titled The End of Men. Researchers have started looking into the relationship between testosterone and excessive risk and wondering if groups of men, in some basic hormonal way, spur each other to make reckless decisions. The picture emerging is a mirror image of the traditional gender map, men and markets on the side of the irrational and over-emotional, and women on the side of the cool and level-headed. Over the centuries, empirical, clear thinking has become branded with the image of default men. They were the ones granted the opportunity, the education, the leisure, the power, to put their thoughts out into the world. In people's minds, what do professors look like? What do judges look like? What do leaders look like? The very aesthetic of seriousness has been monopolised by default man. Practically every person on the globe who wants to be taken seriously in politics, business and the media dresses up in some way like a default man in a grey, western, two-piece business suit. Not for nothing is it referred to as power dressing. We've all seen those photo ops of world leaders. Colour and pattern shriek out as anachronistic. Consequently, many women have adopted this armour of the unremarkable. Angela Merkel, once the most powerful woman in the world, wore a predictable, unfussy, feminised version of the male look. Hillary Clinton adopted a similar style. Some businesswomen describe this need to tone down their feminine appearance as taking on the third gender. The British entrepreneur and Dragon's Den investor Peter Jones was once referred to as eccentric for wearing brightly coloured stripy socks. So rigid is the default man look that men's suit fashions pivot on tiny changes of detail at a glacial pace. US politicians wear such a narrow version of the default man look that you rarely see one wearing a tie that is not plain or striped. One tactic that men use to disguise their subjectively restricted clothing choices is the justification of spurious function, as if they need a watch that splits lap times and works 300 feet underwater, or a Himalayan mountaineer's jacket for a walk in the park. The rufty-tufty army hunter camouflage pattern is now to boys as pink is to girls. Curiously, I think the real function of the sober business suit is not to look smart, but as camouflage. A person in a grey suit is invisible, in the way burglars often wear high-vis jackets to pass as unremarkable workmen. The business suit is the uniform of those who do the looking, the appraising. It rebuffs comment by its sheer ubiquity. Modern, over-professionalised politicians, having spent too long in the besuited tribal compound, find casual dress very difficult to get right, convincingly. David Cameron, while ruining Converse basketball shoes for the rest of us, never seemed to me as if he belonged in a pair. When I am out and about in an eye-catching frock, men often remark to me, oh, I wish I could dress like you and did not have to wear a boring suit. Have to. The male role is heavily policed from birth by parents, peers and bosses. Politicians in particular are harshly kept in line by a media that seems to uphold more bizarrely rigid standards of conformity than those held by any citizen. Each component of the default male role, his gender, his class, his age and his sexuality, confines him to an ever-narrower set of behaviours until riding a bicycle or growing a beard 
having messy hair or enjoying a pint are seen as crazy eccentricity. The fashionable London Members Club Shoreditch House, the kind of place where creators with two iPhones and three bicycles hang out, has a no-suits rule. How much of this is a pseudo-rebellious pose, and how much is in recognition of the pernicious effect of the overgrown schoolboy's uniform, I do not know. I dwell on the suit because I feel it exemplifies how the upholders of default male values hide in plain sight. Imagine if, by democratic decree, the business suit was banned, as some items of Islamic dress have been banned in some countries. Default men would flounder and complain that they were not being treated with respect. The most pervasive aspect of the default man identity is that it masquerades very efficiently as normal. And normal, along with natural, is a dangerous word, often at the root of hateful prejudice. As the American psychologist Sherry Borg Carter, author of High Octane Women, How Superachievers Can Avoid Burnout, writes, Women in today's workforce are experiencing a much more camouflaged foe second-generation gender biases, work cultures and practices that appear neutral and natural on their face, yet they reflect masculine values and life situations of men. Personally, working in the arts, I do not often encounter default man en masse, but when I do, it is a shock. I occasionally get invited to formal dinners in the City of London, and on arrival I am met, in my lurid cocktail dress, with a sea of dinner jackets, Perhaps harshly, my expectations of a satisfying conversation drop. I feel rude mentioning the black-clad elephant in the room. I sense that I am the anthropologist allowed into the tribal ritual. Of course, this weird minority, these curiously dominant white males, are anything but normal. Normal, as Carl Jung said, is the ideal aim for the unsuccessful. They like to keep their abnormal power low-key. The higher the power, the duller the suit and tie. A Mercedes rather than a Rolls. Just another old man chatting casually to prime ministers at the wedding of a tabloid editor. Revolution is happening. I am loath to use the R word because it is usually characterised as sudden and violent. But that is just another unhelpful cliché. I feel real revolutions happen thoughtfully in peacetime. A move away from the dominance of default man is taking place, but way too slowly. Such changes in society seem to occur at a pace set by incremental shifts in the animal spirits of the population. I have heard many of the rational, i.e. male, arguments against quotas and positive discrimination, but I feel it is a necessary fudge to enable just change to happen in the foreseeable future. At the present rate of change, it will take more than 100 years before the UK Parliament is 50% female. A 2021 study revised that figure to 40 years. Still too long a time to wait. The outcry against positive discrimination is the wail of someone who is having their privilege taken away. For talented black, female and working class people to take their just place in the limited seats of power, some of those default men are going to have to give up their seats. Perhaps default man needs to step down from some of his most celebrated roles. I'd happily watch a gay black James Bond and an all-female Top Gear, QI or Have I Got News For You. More importantly, we need a quota of MPs who, shock, 
have not been to university, but have worked on the shop floor of key industries, have had life experiences that reflect their constituents, who actually represent the country rather than just a narrow idea of what a politician looks like. The ridiculousness of objections to quotas would become clear if you were to suggest that, instead of calling it affirmative action, we adopted proportionate default man quotas for government and business. We are wasting talent. Default man seems to be the embodiment of George Bernard Shaw's unreasonable man. The reasonable man adapts himself to the world. The unreasonable one persists in trying to make the world adapt to himself. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable man. Default man's days may be numbered. A lot of his habits are seen at best as old-fashioned or quaint, and at worst as redundant, dangerous or criminal. He carries a raft of unhelpful habits and attitudes gifted to him from history. Adrenaline addiction, a need for certainty, snobbery, emotional constipation and an overdeveloped sense of entitlement, which have often proved disastrous for society and can also stop poor default man from leading a fulfilling life. I recently gave a talk on masculinity called Men, Sit Down for Your Rights. A jokey title, yes, but one making a serious point that perhaps if men were to loosen their grip on power, there might be some benefits for them. The straitjacket of the default man identity is not necessarily one happily donned by all members of the tribe. Many struggle with the bad fit of being leader, provider, status hunter, sexual predator, respectable and dignified symbol of straight achievement. Maybe the invisible weightless backpack that the US feminist Peggy McIntosh uses to describe white privilege, full of special provisions, maps, passports, codebooks, visas, clothes, tools and blank checks, does weigh rather a lot, after all. Grayson Perry on the rise and fall of default man was written by Grayson Perry and read by Tom Gatti. If you enjoyed this episode, have a listen to How to Grow Old in America by Jeff Dyer, which is linked in the show notes. This has been Audio Long Reads from the New Statesman. This episode was produced by May Robson. It was commissioned by Tom Gatti and the executive producer was Chris Stone. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to like, subscribe and rate the show. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.